At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Episode number 426. This is Ross Dunn, CEO of Stepforth Web Marketing, and my co-host is my company's senior SEO, Scott Van Ack. Now today, we have a special guest. It's Martin Split from Google. And uh, just to give you a bit of an intro into Martin, Martin is a developer advocate at the Google Search Relations team in Zurich, Switzerland, and as he puts it, a friendly internet fairy and code magician. <laughs> I love that on your LinkedIn profile. <laughs> And I got to say, first of all, thank you so much for being here in your evening. I know it's, uh, you have long days already. So thank you, Martin. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Um, it's brilliant to be here. And I'm really, really looking forward to our conversation. Awesome. Yes. And, and you know, I'm going to jump right into something silly. But I, first of all, I love researching people before I have a call. And, and I looked up a whole bunch of photos of you and stuff. I got to ask, I, I got a hell of a kick out of some of your photos. I like, you got character. And I, I admire that. What is the story behind the unicorn outfits? Um, that began in Montreal in, I can't remember, was it like 2015 or something? So it, it has been a while ago uh, when someone said, if I get you a unicorn onesie, will you do a talk in it? And I said, <laughs> yes. Assuming that they couldn't get a unicorn onesie like on the very, very short notice because it was at the conference and my, my talk was basically the next day. And little did I know that there was a unicorn onesie available for me. So, yeah. And then I realized that's a, that's a quite fun one. Uh, I realized that it's a fantastic icebreaker because there's like a few challenges to you as a speaker going to events. And one challenge that I usually face is that oftentimes there's, especially in the developer world, there are so hyper-focused communities like the Angular community, the React community, the backend, I don't know, Ruby community, the Python community, the PHP community. And these communities are usually relatively closely knit. And I have never been 
in one specific community only. I have been this weird traveler between the worlds, if you want to say. And I have worked with so many different technologies and I realized like the technology for me doesn't matter. It's mostly like what problem am I trying to solve? What's the right tool to solve that problem? And then I picked from a, from a palette of different uh, technologies to solve the problem at hand. Uh, and yet I solved problems uh, in that not that many people sometimes had solved before. And I was, at least I was the one who was willing to talk about it and the journey towards the solution. And, um, and so I ended up at a bunch of different events uh, from very different communities. And if they don't know you, they don't necessarily interact much with you. Uh, also, if you're a speaker in a community that already does know you, a lot of people feel intimidated, right? So the, the unicorn onesie was fantastic and phenomenal because it just allowed me to just roam a community that didn't know me and just get in, in, into conversations and meet people who were too shy to reach out to a speaker or who were not. Uh, not not interested in in like talking to someone that they didn't know and only wanted to hang out with the people they did know. So I made a lot of connections at these events thanks to the onesie, and so I awesome. kept doing that. <laughs> I love it. That's great, man. Well, it's uh, there's <laughs> brilliant photos out there. Uh, <laughs> love it. Okay, well, let's jump into this. Um, so. Uh, as I understand it, one of your roles is to demystify Google's treatment of JavaScript upon crawling. Now, is, yes. did I get that right? Yes. Okay. Not necessarily crawling, but fundamentally demystify JavaScript and its relation to Google search. Yes. Oh, awesome. Okay. Can you elaborate on that for listeners you know, who may not have an understanding what yes. even JavaScript does and why this Absolutely. is an important topic? Absolutely. Thanks. So... If you have been using the web in the last couple of years, the likelihood that you have been in touch with some sort of JavaScript web application has been close to 100%. So um, we are recording this podcast in a browser. So I see your face, you see my face, you hear my voice. Now the listeners hear my voice. That all happens in the browser, not in a like traditional download install kind of application or app on my phone or something. And that is because our browsers have a programming language that allows us to access all these newfangled things, such as microphones, cameras, the network, uh, push notifications, make websites work offline. All this kind of behavior has been done or built using a technology called JavaScript. JavaScript, despite the name, has nothing to do with Java. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. So if you don't want to make an idiot out of yourself, don't like talk about Java and JavaScript in the same sentence, unless you say uh, JavaScript is not the same as Java. That's, I think, the only acceptable sentence um, where that would work. But there's a high likelihood that you have used some sort of email program, calendar, scheduling application, some sort of social network um, that allows you to do a bunch of stuff, like has these pop-ups that pop in allows you to post things without reloading or leaving the page, um, allows you to load more news while you scroll, these kind of things. All this behavior, everything that is dynamic is very, very likely been built in JavaScript. The big question from SEOs then is, but how does that impact my work on, on SEO on websites? Because JavaScript pretty much holds the keys to everything. It's like the facility manager of the website. It can remove things from the website. It can add things that weren't there before. It can modify the things that there are on the website. So how does that, how does that get reflected in search engines? Is, is something that I add via JavaScript visible to search engines? How about is something that I remove with JavaScript actually being removed? What if the adding only happens when I scroll? What if it only happens when I click on a button? These kind of questions were out there, I think, and they have been for a long time. And at least Google's answer has been, it mostly works. And that makes everyone very uncomfortable and very, very nervous, understandably so. Because if, if you go to a, a garage and get your car fixed and you pick it back up and you say like is it fixed now and they say like very likely yes that's probably not great so that's when i got to work and basically started digging into what specifically works what specifically doesn't work where are the limits is that a technical limitation does that make sense do we need to change things is this a bug um, and also then catching up with documentation with our fantastic uh, tech writer, Lizzie Sassman. Uh, she's absolutely amazing. Um, helped me to like figure out what are the questions that people are asking out there? What are the answers to these questions? Wow. So is it, uh, you know, with all those questions, is this, is this all you do for your, your role in your job? Like, are you answering these questions all the time? Or? I do answer them all the time. I'm actually literally on LinkedIn. Someone is very, very angry with me right now. Um, not a LinkedIn employee, just like a random person on the internet is very, very angry because I said something, they misunderstood it a little bit. And now I try to explain to them why 
what they believe is not quite right, but what they think I said is also not what I actually said. Uh, that, that's a that's a large part of my job, and I really enjoy this. The other thing is we often do a lot of work that is invisible to the external world, like the documentation changes. Um, there's a bunch of work with internal product teams when they want to launch a new thing or when they want to change something. We usually consult with them to make sure that this is fine for for everyone in the community as well as Google. Um, we do triage and fix bugs. Um, I also run uh, a few events that we do, like the virtual unconference uh, that we did last year that we will do again this year. Uh, I did used to help uh, Gary from my team run the webmaster conferences around the world. Um, yeah, so and, and then off, also often uh, I am just speaking at an event uh, or at a podcast like this. Uh. I feel for you. I, I, you know, again, doing a little research, listening to how often you have to deal with, they misunderstood me. <laughs> it must be very hard having to check every word you say. To be fair, if it is a complicated question and the answer is complicated, I kind of see that. But it's really, really unfortunate because oftentimes there is a simple answer. Like if, this is the yes or no question. And I'm often like, it's not. Because if I say yes, for this context, for what you described to me, it is yes, but people will hear this and then think, oh, so generally speaking, the answer to this much broader question that we started from is yes, and it's not. Uh, the internet is a very diverse and wild place uh, with so many different things working together at the same time to give us all these pretty colorful pixels on our screens. Uh, it, it very rarely is a clear yes or no answer. And that's very, very hard to reflect. And it's, it's unfortunate if I, for the sake of simplicity, say something broadly, and then people ignore all the details I put in this specific answer. It, it makes me sad. And if, if it's, if it's at least by mistake, I'm kind of fine with it and we can talk about it. If it's by malice, because you're trying to push an agenda or if you're, you're trying to mislead people into buying your product or service, then, then I have a problem with that. And that's why I don't answer certain questions anymore at all. Yeah, well, and that's a good note. I forgot to mention that, that uh, uh, you know, because you're not in that area, you don't answer questions about rankings and that's fine. We're, we're this is good. Um, it's actually forces us to go in a different area because our clients or customers and listeners all want ranking questions answered, but there's so much more. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what you're here for. Yes. That's great. Uh, Scott, yes. do you want to take the next one about uh, JavaScript? Yeah, let's see here. I got to find my notes here. Uh, I guess, you know, what are some of the most common JavaScript mistakes that cause crawling issues for websites? Like, what are some of the big, mm. don't do this if you're a web developer? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it used to be back in the day, if you had JavaScript-based header navigation, that was like, you're dead right <laughs> off the start. But I mean, that's, I know that's not an issue anymore necessarily, but are there any things like that that we need to watch out for? It's, there's already like multiple layers to your question, even though it yeah. sounds a simple question, it's not. So when you say like, what are the most common JavaScript mistakes or problems or errors versus what are the most common things that JavaScript developers do wrong? Those are two very distinct Sorry. things. Yeah, not necessarily uh, coding errors, like 
miss right. semicolons and stuff, but like uh, uses, I suppose. So what what I often see is um, overly excited SEOs being like, oh, our crawl budget, it's holy, so we need to protect it. So we are just going to to completely disable and disallow um, the, our API. And then they have some JavaScript that runs in the browser and thus also will run in Googlebot. Uh, that actually needs to fetch data from the API to display any content, and then the content can't be fetched because you just disallowed Googlebot to do that. So none of the content shows up. And then they're like, see, JavaScript doesn't work. And I said, like, actually, it does. The JavaScript tried to load content from your API, and you have told us not to. So it's not JavaScript's fault that that happened. Uh, that is actually kind of your fault. That's, that's the, I think, the number one problem that we're seeing with JavaScript. So <clears throat> I understand that JavaScript is power and resource intensive. Now, I have to admit, I've never been a programmer. I understand a tiny bit of code, other than obviously HTML and stuff that I, I know well. But um, and I didn't know that it was considered resource intensive and that in many ways is almost, <laughs> in, a, in a way, bad for the environment because it uses so much power. Yeah. Are there new technologies or languages coming that you think will supplant it or make it better? That is really, really speculative and really, really hard to answer because I, I don't know. Like, uh, okay. I think if you would go to the year before the iPhone launched and ask anyone if we will ever like just, you know, carry around a phone and people will not have laptops and desktops and just work from a phone for what they're doing and they'll be traveling with it and they'll do like pretty much all their day-to-day -day activities with it. People probably have said no. Um, what I do know is that there have been various attempts at replacing JavaScript and none of them have ever like even come close to that goal, uh, which is not to say that maybe our consumption, maybe the way that we interact with the web uh, might change in the future. I think like, was it, like 2010, someone said like, oh yeah, the web is dead and uh, we will not, <laughs> will not use a browser. And I am definitely the example of that not happening. Uh, and the fact that we are recording this, at least on my end in the browser right now, tells me that the web might not be fully dead. Uh, I also remember Taco Bell at some point stopped having a website and then they very quickly revised that if I remember correctly. Uh, and, and so, yeah, the, the messages about webs dead, uh, or death are vastly exaggerated. And I, I don't know if JavaScript will be around in five years or 10 years, but I'm pretty sure something will continue to allow us to build on the web as the application platform. Uh, it, it might as well be JavaScript. So nothing's on the radar. That's good to know. No, I'm just curious. Uh, Flash isn't what... making a comeback. Oh. Yeah, Flash. <laughs> Flash isn't making a comeback. No. Okay. No. <laughs> uh, so I've seen very old SEO information persists online, and we see a lot of misinformation. Yeah. Um, and we always seem to have to correct this stuff from prospective clients. So I'm wondering, is this the, is the same true for some of the black hat techniques you guys see? You know, does do you, for example, no. do you guys still see cloaking? I can't even imagine thinking yeah, like yeah. that anymore, but do you guys still see that, that stuff? Yeah, that, that still mm -hmm. happens. Uh, same with like link farming or guest posting wow. and all this kind of stuff still continues to happen. Um, 
yeah, that, that it's just everything takes a really, really long time to get out of people's minds. And I think, especially with SEO, the problem is that people are like, oh, I heard someone, a friend of a friend of a friend has said that it's X, Y, Z. And uh, it's very, very hard to figure that out if it's true or not, because then you go online and you search for that particular piece of information. And there's, there's stuff from like 10 years ago or even like five years ago or three years ago, or even like yesterday where someone is like, I still think that's true. And, and it, it, as I said earlier, like this, this specific exchange that I have with someone online right now is literally someone saying like, I don't, I don't like what you said here. I think it's wrong. I completely disagree. And I say like, that's how Googlebot works. And then they say, no, that, that can't be true. It can't work like that. It doesn't know that's wrong. I said like, well, what, what do you want to hear from me? <laughs> I, I can only tell you how it is. If you disagree with this, that's fine by me, but then please don't talk to me again because <laughs> I, what's the point of this? Exactly. This exchange yeah. and, that, and that keeps happening. Uh, well, I'm sorry on behalf of. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> it's, it's fine. It's. I think I think it's it's one of these. So I I can I can roll that out here while we are at it. If you want to, I can elaborate on the specific problem and the specific point that was made here. Um, if you're interested in it, sure, it has something to do with SEO. So there you go. Yeah. Uh, in in a recent podcast, we talked about a hypothetical um, search engine. If we were like, if Gary, John, and I from my team would be building a search engine, which makes things easier because then we can talk about hypothetical things without necessarily meaning what we actually do in Google search. Uh, we call this new search engine, Steve. And uh, in Steve, we were wondering how would we make sure that we are presenting good content to users? Like what would we, is actually kind of answering ranking questions if I'm honest. Uh, because that's what we try to talk about. And the thing is like, obviously ranking is very, very complex and there's no way that we can talk about how Google search actually does it. But there are a few fundamental thoughts and principles that we can talk about that definitely ring true. And for the hypothetical search engine also makes sense. So if I were to build a search engine to, today, I would want all the good content, all the relevant content to be available to my users. That poses a range of problems. One of which is what if there is a website with fantastic content, but terrible, terrible, terrible HTML to the point where it's even invalid HTML. Let's say like there's a paragraph that hasn't been closed or everything is just a huge diff with lots of text in it. And some of the text has been bolded. Some of the text has been made larger, but none of it uses any reasonable HTML markup. Like it's all, if you would look at it as a person who knows what HTML is supposed to look like, you'd be like, oh my God, this is utter garbage, but the content is good. Mm. So as a search engine, if I write a search engine today, my search engine has two choices. Choice number one, it's invalid HTML. I can't parse this, so we just throw it away and we'll never show it to a user. Full stop, done. Or I say, well, uh, we can't say for certain what is and isn't a section, what is and isn't a headline, because it's all, as far as we know, it's all a huge blob of text because someone has not taken care of actually writing proper HTML. 
it's a body tag and then in the body tag all of it is just text like there's not even a div or a p in there it's just it's just a huge mess of text and then there's like some font tags or like some strong and emphasizes and stuff like that and so italics. it was built in front page <laughs> yeah front page 95 uh fantastic good good choice um yeah and and it it, it looks great for the user and it has all the great information, but it's just like, we, we can't parse this. We don't know, we throw it away. We don't show it to the user. Or as I said, the alternative is that we can say like, well, we don't know for sure, but at least like the information in it is good. Like the, the content itself describes the, or like answers the query intent perfectly. Um, and we have a certain, certain amount of certainty that this might be a headline because it's like there is like this this uh, boldened bigger text that looks short and looks like a headline and from the way of writing it resembles the headline and then there's like a bunch of non-bold text below it and then there's another bold piece of text below that and then you know and then it continues it looks like a site structure but it isn't and it's terrible but we can say like with 10 percent certainty we think this is a headline and this is the section that belongs under the headline. And with 25% certainty, this other thing is also a headline. And then this other thing here is also, again, a paragraph of text. So while the HTML does not allow us to be sure about certain things, which we would if it was written properly, if it was programmed properly in HTML and valid HTML, we can still extract the information. We can still make assumptions about what the user, what the, what the author of this page meant and we can still present this to the user. And if I, for my search engine, had to choose be between not showing good content and showing good content that is potentially not as well structured as it could be, just because I need to make predictions and assumptions and guesses, um, I'd rather go for, I, I guess this is good and show it to you rather than just discarding it entirely. And that's what I said. That's fundamentally, I made it a lot more like, uh, short and concise, I said, uh, where is it? Actually, let me see the quote. So if you are writing a, an HTML page that's not valid HTML, we still want to index it because the content might be really, really good and useful for users. That's what I try to say. And, and that's what I, like, one thing is what I meant and you, you heard that was a much yeah. longer explanation and then that's what I said. And I, I, pre, like, I, I give a follow-up on that sentence uh, afterwards where I say like, so we have to deal with that, but obviously, the moment we deal with something where the semantics and that means the HTML isn't clear, we might make mistakes or we might misunderstand something. So, you know, uh, it might go wrong. We might not show the information that you wanted us to show because we don't know if it's good or not because we had to make guesses, which we wouldn't have to make if you would have given us proper HTML in the first place. And this person's like, no, you have to write perfect HTML. Otherwise, Google can't work with it. And I'm like, first things first, I didn't say that about Google. That's the very first thing. I did not say that Google does this, in fact. Fun fact, it does. If your page does have HTML validation errors, we will try to understand what you mean. But if a machine tries to understand you, if you've ever used autocorrect and said duck you to someone <laughs> or worse, then you do know that machines understanding things does not always go well. So obviously you still want to write valid HTML. That should be your goal. But if something works really, really well in a search engine of your choice, 
then it's not something to freak out about. It's like, oh, this validator says there's five errors. Yeah, so what? The page gets the traffic and the rankings that we want. So moving on, there's better places to put your energy. But again, that assumes that everything seems to be working. Just because a tool says it's a problem doesn't mean that it's actually a problem. That's the point I'm trying to make. Right. Okay. Well, it's good to know. I mean, I, I don't see anything wrong with that. I mean, it makes good sense. I think we've always assumed it that if, well, we know it because we see a lot of sites out there that are garbage that do have good content and still show up. And we're yeah. always like, how the hell Why are they there? Really? <laughs> it was made in 97. But yeah, it's got good content. So, <laughs> um, okay. I, I, I think it makes sense. And yet it makes people angry on the internet. But I think that like, everything makes people angry on the internet. So there's that. There's a lot of anger out there, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. So many different ways. <laughs> uh, um, so is there any content out there that Google still has difficulty crawling? Uh, sorry, can you, can you run on that? Question passed me again. Sure. Yeah. I missed the beginning. Is there any type of content out there that Google still has trouble or difficulty crawling? I mean, difficulty crawling. Uh, not I say really. Understanding. I think <laughs> understanding. That's a very so that's a that's a different, different. question. Yeah. For for those out there who wonder like why I'm very specific about this, there's the distinct phases of crawling, indexing, and ranking uh, in any search engine, really. Like the crawling is the intake part. We need to basically download the stuff from your website to process it. The processing understanding part is indexing, where we try to figure out, ah, this website is about cat food and not dog food. So we probably might want to show it for cat food queries and not for dog food queries. Um, and then last but not least, we have a lot of documents, a lot of websites out there uh, talking about cat food. And if you are asking for cat food in some sort of capacity, we will have to look through all of these potential candidates and then bring them in an order and present them to the users. And then actually there's a last step that's called serving. So once things have been ranked and put into a list, fundamentally, we need to show this list to the user. That's the serving part. Um, each of these come with their own challenges. Uh, with crawling, the content is not that much of a problem because as far as crawling is concerned, uh, they either download stuff from your website or they don't. Like it, there's, there's not that much that can, I mean, there's a bunch of stuff that can go wrong, but like most of it is transparent uh, and we handle it internally and you don't have to deal with it. But with understanding it's trickier because there's so many factors that go into it. So I think one of the things that is really, really hard um, for, for Google search specifically is when uh, content is when the intention of the of the content is unclear. Like if you have a long rambling website that talks about ten different things on the same page, what is this about? We're reasonably good at figuring it out, but sometimes it does go wrong, and then people get very very upset about it. Uh, another thing is it's not a difficulty, but it's a general problem and it's actually not a technical problem. And it's not a Google problem per se is what happens if someone clones content? What if someone mm. makes a copy of someone else's content? There's very clear legal implications and I'd rather not go into more details because I'm not a lawyer, but fundamentally then the question is like, how do we determine who is the original author? We can't. People attribute it to Google, like, you should block this because they stole from me. And we're like, we are not a lawyer. We are not a law enforcement agency. 
um, you need to figure this one out. There's the DMCA process that you can kick off and then you can come back to us uh, with the DMCA measures and then deal with that. But who are we to judge that? We have no legal right or ethical right to make judgments based on that. So um, that's a very, very tricky one. And again, it's not a technical problem. That's a very legal and, and um, societal issue with stolen content. I know that NFTs suffer the same, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, I bought this NFT of this thing. It's like, yeah, but the person who just made the money actually didn't make the piece of art. So good job. Yeah. Um, okay. yeah. So it's, it's, it's tricky. Uh, that that's a tricky one. The, the other uh, one would be thing... too, with, uh, if you've got duplicate content out there or someone has copied your content, if yours was indexed months earlier, mm. there's a certain amount of, I mean, yes, the person copied it. That's a whole nother thing. DMCA, all that stuff, but Google will give credit from an S or Again, we'll I'm definitely try to get try. ranking, but yeah, we'll yeah, yeah, yeah. we'll definitely yeah. try to figure that one out. But what if we just discovered the copied version before your version? Yeah, uh, that's unfortunate. That's very, very unfortunate because we can't easily like obviously, like if I give you two websites out of nowhere, out of the blue, I just show you two pages, and I ask you which one came first, you'll be like, absolutely, I, I, yeah. I don't, I don't know, <laughs> I, I can't, I can't say which one came first. Um, it's so as much, what, much guesswork for us. You were mentioning the, uh, uh, how, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff on one page and it's hard for Google to sort of, sort of sometimes figure out this muddle. Yeah. Do you think that kind I mean, again, I know people ask me questions all the time. Our favorite answer is depends, <laughs> but when it <laughs> comes down, to, <laughs> it always depends, but, uh, single page websites kind of frustrate me in that way when I get them given to us to market or optimize like no 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 let's break this into pages and it just it's so much easier contextually and understanding how does Google handle those that's a fantastic question and uh, I will not answer it depends this time I promise um the the way that we handle it is we basically look at the website from two perspectives. One obviously is the HTML that you send us over. So if all the content is in the HTML, that's one thing. But we also look at what a browser or a user's browser or a user in the end would see. So, uh, and by see, I don't necessarily mean, oh, it's on the screen, but more like what is potentially visible on a device if I were to scroll and swipe and whatnot. And well, actually not scroll and swipe, but what could I potentially see on this page? And um, in a single page application, at least if it's done more or less right, the way that it should work is that not all the content is in the initial HTML that gets sent from a, from a server. So you would see a certain URL generates a certain HTML with a certain content in it. If the content is loaded by, by a JavaScript or not, doesn't really matter for us. As long as we see some content in the final state that we go with, uh, uh, go on with and, and index, um, then you would probably see a single page application. Let's say like uh, about and products and um, contact us or something like that, or our history or whatever, our team um, testimonials. If you have these on separate views as they're called in single page applications and under separate URLs, then each URL would give us a different HTML uh, in the end. And actually, if again, if that's done by JavaScript or not, doesn't really matter. And then we would just figure out, okay, so this URL is this content, this URL is that content. Um, 
and that would be fine. That would just be a traditional page. It gets trickier if people are then like, no, it's actually not that much content. So we load all the content into the HTML. But even then, it's not as big of a problem as people assume because we look at what does get shown. And if it's implemented more or less correctly, then you see a bunch of content and you don't see a bunch of other content. So we can say like, well, looking relatively speaking for this URL, this content seems to be more important with the other URL, the other content seems to be more important because it gets positioned differently and it's actually visible on the screen. Um, and thus we can still, again, we are now we're guessing, right? Beforehand, we weren't guessing There, there is, this URL yields this content about the products, this URL, yields the content about the team, and this URL yields the content about the testimonials. Now, each of these URLs yields the same content, at least in the HTML, but the rendering, the thing that you see on screen does not. This URL sees the products, this URL sees the testimonials, but it contains all the content. So we then make guesses and we might guess like, okay, so maybe this URL is actually this kind of content, that URL is actually that kind of content. But then there's a follow-up question that, that gets me into hot water again. And people say like, okay, so you can figure out what content or you try to guess the importance of content based on if you show it on screen or not. But what about carousels? Mm -hmm. To which I say, that's a fantastic question, but look at it from a user's perspective. If you have content that you really, really, really care about, but I have to click on a little arrow or like swipe on my phone three times to see it, how much importance will I give it as a user if you hide it away like that? Mm -hmm. And the search engine does the exact same thing. If I come to this page and I don't see it, it is maybe not as important as the other thing. And that, that sends SEOs into a spiral going like, oh my God, all our, our carousel content will not be ranking. It might, it might very well rank nonetheless. It might just not be considered as important as whatever is immediately visible. So it's, it's all a relative game and it's all like, obviously if there is something that is relevant to one search query, we call it search query A and that is visible immediately. And then there's something that is uh, relevant to search query B and that is hidden in the carousel. Then for search query A, you might still rank well with the page and for search query B, surprise, surprise, you might still rank well as well, even though the, the content is hidden behind a carousel. Um, if the content is good enough and there is not that much competition that makes it more prominent, then you have good chances that it's not a problem actually. And rankings change all the time because people change their websites all the time. So even if you don't do anything, other websites might disappear, they might change their, their content, they might change, uh, the structure of their, their website, they might do something that, that makes us uh, not index a, a piece of, of their content anymore. And, and thus you keep moving around and our algorithms keep changing on a day-to-day -day basis. So you might, even if everyone just st stops touching their websites for a week, you might still see ranking movements. So looking at ranking is not the best thing you can potentially do, I think. And I didn't even bring up ranking. There we go. <laughs> There's so many other metrics you have to look at. Yeah, ranking is certainly important in a lot of cases, but it's certainly not the end all be all. If your sales are going up, who cares how you rank? Yeah, exactly. Well, right. not yeah. not entirely, but you know, it's you want to look at your your ROI and your your yeah. your paycheck at the end of the month. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Scott, yeah. go for it. You got another one yeah. there. 
do you find that the internet community is still overthinking a lot of things when it comes to optimizing content? Yeah, yeah, it's a bit of a smirk yeah. there, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they, they do. Like, there's a lot of, of thought being put into the completely wrong thing. And um, it's like, oh, do I need to have a social media profile? And I'm like, well, not for ranking purposes, but it's probably still useful because people see your stuff there. And if they like it, they might click through to your website. And that's a good thing, I guess. <laughs> um, do I do I need to uh, to make sure like, oh, oh, my God, I have duplicate content warnings. So what? Like, is, is that even content that you care about? Is it like, is, is the content indexed? Yes, but there's a duplicate and that doesn't get indexed. Yeah, but do you care about that URL? No. Well, then what's the problem? Like, you don't need to worry about that. Oh my God, crawl budget, crawl budget. I heard about crawl budget. I want to improve my core budget. Uh, how large is your website? It has 12 pages. Like, yeah, no, you don't need to worry about crawl budget. <laughs> or even like I have 100,000 pages. Um, you probably don't need to worry as much about crawl budget as you think you do. Uh, or like, oh, Martin, we have this huge SEO problem on our website. The the crawling, like the, the rate of crawling has decreased. So did you like introduce as much new content as you used to? No. Okay. Did you update any of your content? No. Then why would we crawl? Why would we crawl? It doesn't like we, we have crawling means we ingest your content. We take it into our pipeline and put it into our database fundamentally so that it can be shown in search results. Once we've done that and we have established this does the Wikipedia article on marmalade, how often does that change? I actually don't know the answer, so I'm just going to Google it real quick. <sighs> What's marmalade, Wikipedia. I'm just, I'm a huge fan of Eddie Izzard and uh, they made this joke uh, like, you know, these Wikipedia rabbit holes that you fall into, you start like, oh, yeah. what is this and that? And then you're like, <laughs> related to marmalade, and that's a link. And then you click on it, and like, marmalade was invented by Mr. Oh. and Mrs. Marmalade. And um, yeah. <laughs> so, I know that, actually. <laughs> and then you, you keep clicking on things. So, uh, here we have the Wikipedia page, and it has a history. There has been a change, surprisingly, actually, okay, that's a terrible example, I realized, because it actually has a lot of changes, which I did not <laughs> really? see coming, to be honest. Yeah, there's like one on the 20th of December. There's a second one on the 20th of December last year. Uh, there's one on the 12th, one of the 10th of November, 30th October, 27th of October, 3rd of October. So it's, it's much more changes than I expected. I think I'm gonna have to, to check out trends on marmalade. Maybe there's some big marmalade news. <laughs> maybe, out there. maybe it's like that's that's maybe the ranking secret that everyone has looked for. I guess um, we're gonna have a great ranking I'm, for marmalade now. What if this I'm is gonna searching. be in our show notes? <laughs> I'm so sorry. Uh, I'm, I'm looking for something else, like a random Swiss town. Yeah, like there has been one change in November last year, one in September, uh, and then like. That's pretty much it for last year, I think. Yeah, that's pretty much it for last year. Like a few changes in, or here like 2020, there has been a change in December, one in June and one in April. Why would we crawl this every week? <laughs> does, it doesn't make sense. It does mm -hmm. absolutely not make sense. Why would we crawl it multiple times a day? It does not make sense. 
So we would not crawl that. If you have a website that has been around for a year and there's nothing that changes, why would we crawl? So then people are like, oh shit, that's a problem. So we need to create a blog and we need to update that daily. Yeah, but what if this blog is really, 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 really irrelevant to everyone outside of your company? So no one will want to read it. So no one will search for the stuff that you put on the blog. So then what's the point? Yeah, but the crawling has gone up. Yeah, but did your rankings change? Did your impressions change? Did your click-through change? No. Well, then maybe that was a waste of your time. I'm not saying that a blog is a waste of your time. If you have really useful content and there is a lot of things that need to be discussed and you have an audience that is really, really looking for all these answers, mm -hmm. then by all means, create a daily blog post or a weekly blog post or a monthly blog post because this might get you in. Like, I don't know if the marmalade community has like uh, <laughs> smashing events where they get together and taste each other's marmalade, then go for it. Go write about every event that you can possibly go to to taste people's marmalade review every new marmalade that gets on the market and there might be people who are like oh i've seen this new marmalade i wonder what it tastes like and then they find your review and they'll be really really happy and they might buy it from your store who knows but it's not it's it always depends right always. if i'm making this website <laughs> yeah. if i'm making this website for a cafe around the corner then i don't need a blog I might, I, maybe, maybe, maybe I can get something with a blog, but maybe Events. if I'm just putting in there, <laughs> today our opening hours are, then what's the point? That should be on the website. That should be right there. This should be information that I can find more easily. That shouldn't be like a daily blog post kind of situation. No. And when we talk about blogs, we talk about authority plans and ensuring that whatever you write, it's not a waste of time. I mean, you've seen content online that's proven to have had legs you know people have liked it commented on it take that get that idea make an ultimate version of it write that even if it takes you two months it's going to be kick ass it's going to do very well yeah and, and, and also in general the, figure yeah. out what your people what your audience wants and needs and then fill that need exactly it's so simple isn't it <laughs> that's what i love about it it's it's absolutely not that's the problem as i so i come from a developer background and for me at the very beginning of my career seo was a checklist like okay so i've i've written valid html i've been one of these people i've written valid html uh, my website is fast uh caching is good all images have alt text uh yeah seo solved big check mark check that tick that off the list done and then no one came ever through search. <laughs> and um, why is that? Is that that's weird? Like my yeah. website looks fantastic from a technical point of view. Um, we have all the content that the the customer asked us for. And then I talked to our SEO team, and they explained to me like, no, that's not that's not it. The problem is that the content is wrong. The structure doesn't make sense for people. We tested that with actual customers and uh, potential customers, and we need to change the content. Yeah, sure. Your work as a developer is done here. The technical foundation is solid. Move on. Now it's in our hands, and that's, that's okay. That's fine. Awesome. But it's never that easy. Yeah. <laughs> it's never. <Absolutely. laughs> Can we talk just for a sec, even though everybody hates it, Core Web Vitals? Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I, I know when Google first announced that it was coming, everyone freaked out and uh, we all thought it was going to be this catastrophic, earth ending, 
ranking shattering event. And really it kind of turned out that if Google hadn't told us it was coming, maybe nobody would have noticed that it happened. Um, but then we see, you know, in the past, things like SSL and site speed and mobile friendliness all kind of start like that. You know, they're, they're a signal that doesn't do anything. It just grows and grows and grows and grows. So do you think core web vitals will continue to grow in importance and evolve? Do you have any insight into the future of core web vitals? Will we ever have to freak out about it? Mm. Oh, that's a really tricky one. So <laughs> if you think about it, um, a lot of people turned or ha had their web experience turned sour by the growing um, decrease in web performance, as in like people were just like cramming together technologies and like making hodgepodge solutions, quote unquote, um, that just basically shifted the, the burden of work to users' devices. And that is an ongoing, ongoing trend in all software engineering, unfortunately. Uh, you see that we used to have a Pentium 2 processor with like 400 megabytes and were able to make like 3D animated movies with that. And today try to play a, a video on YouTube on an old uh, iPhone or on an, on an old Android tablet or something that is like seven years old. Um, you might have a bad experience. And that's really, really unfortunate because the devices are super powerful and like a bazillion, <coughs> excuse me, let me restart there. And the devices are like a million times as powerful as what we used to fly to the moon. And yet it seems to be that software gets slower and slower and slower over time. And that is because developers could get away with it as computing power doubled every what was it 18 months or something um, in the past hasn't been true in the last couple of years but um, you could get away with a lot of non-optimal things and uh, a non-optimal software that runs on a user's device is better than a perfect software that does not because I haven't finished it yet so this mentality has also come to the web I think um, and we are seeing that especially with JavaScript you can do a lot of things inefficiently with JavaScript if you're not careful enough. And uh, you didn't have to be careful for a really long time because everyone just, you know, browsed on their iMacs and on their latest desktops and Windows gaming PCs and whatnot, or Linux machines that they very fine tuned to what they need and what the hardware can give them. Um, and now we're on these phones and we are stuck with the same phone for a longer period of time. And now we actually notice it. You notice how hardware hungry, the web and other applications have become. So there needed to be a counter initiative. And uh, I don't know about you, but I, so we recently moved and we needed to order furniture. And when I saw a piece of furniture that I liked, I was very likely to buy it from the store that had a website that didn't suck. Absolutely. And not, not because I'm a geek, not because I'm a nerd. My wife did the exact same thing. Our friends did the exact same thing. If I'm trying to buy a sofa and I go to your website and I see the sofa I want and I click on it and while I move my finger towards the screen pane, it shifts and then there's like a nightstand oh, and I happy. tap on the nightstand and then the nightstand goes up and then like a pop-up opens if I want their newsletter or not. And then another pop-up opens if I want push notifications or not. And then another pop-up opens saying like, is it okay if we save you the cookies on your device? I am not going to buy that sofa from you. I'll go somewhere else. 
but there has been not much besides like um, uh, the, the interstitials uh, thing, there hasn't been much in terms of search metrics or anything that we could use uh, to, to get that, that feeling of a user, the potentially experience uh, of the user into search and into ranking. AMP was an interesting experiment towards making that happen by saying like, okay, so we, we say, we, we give you AMP, we give you a limited subset of what the web can do, and we make that as fast as possible. And we even take away the server side potential problems by caching it uh, in, in between the you and, and the user so that we can make sure that it's as fast as potentially possible. And we wanted to see how that goes. And we noticed that there was a preference for the faster versions. I'm not saying it was perfect, but it did prove a point that, um, that performance is an important part of, well, satisfaction or experience, whatever you want to call it. Obviously, it's not, it's not just that, right? It's also, do I like the color scheme? Is it available in a language that I speak? Because the most fast and beautiful website is pointless. If I don't speak the language that it's in, uh, then it doesn't serve me either. Um, but language, we already know. We've, we can figure that one out. Um, Server-side speed, we can figure out. Because when we crawl, what we do is we contact your server and then basically act as if we were a device from a user and receive the data. So we know that. What we don't know is what happens afterwards. How quickly does the content show up? Does it jump around? Does it let me actually interact with it? Because that's the other thing that is really, really annoying. If you are like in a web shop and you say like, I want to order this and nothing happens and you tap it again, like seriously. And then you tap it again and then you tap it again. And then you see that you added five of whatever it is to your, to your checkout card. It's like, no, I don't want five. I wanted this one thing. And then you remove one and nothing happens. And then you remove one and nothing happens. And then afterwards you're left with an empty card because it has removed all five because you clicked five times because it didn't respond. Frustrating. So we came up with a set of uh, metrics that reflects exactly that. How much does thing, do things move around? That's the, um, oh God, what's the, cumulative I keep forgetting the, the name of that, sorry? The cumulative layout shift? Yeah, so, correct. Yeah. CLS, uh, we have the, how fast does the main content of the website pop up visually? Uh, that is the largest content for paint. And then how quickly can I interact with it, which is the first input delay. These are the three metrics that we have today. Um, we realized when we launched this, I think two years ago at this point, uh, we launched the metrics or was it last year? The pandemic makes everything go weird. Time is uh, yeah, not it's a blur. Ago now, I don't know anymore. <laughs> See, I, I can't remember. It was launched at some point um, <laughs> and in the past. And we launched these three metrics and uh, we got feedback. We got positive feedback, people saying like, oh yeah, this actually matches more or less what I'm experiencing. And we got negative feedback. We got people saying like, oh, so the CLS does this thing that I don't think makes sense. And uh, we got a lot of this kind of feedback. Um, and the, the way that the CLS metric, the cumulative layout shift, how much things move around on the page uh, after they load, um, the way that we gather this metric has changed. So in order to reflect the reality better. So will, will Core Web Vitals keep evolving? Absolutely, yes. There's a yearly cadence in which we want to be able to uh, say like, this is going to change and uh, we don't want to catch everyone uh, off guard. We want to give everyone a heads up like, hey, 
starting in six months or something, we might be changing the way that we collect this information, or we might be changing the metrics whatsoever. Like maybe the metrics are no longer useful and relevant. Maybe we need different metrics uh, to look at. And it will evolve because the goal is not to have random metrics, but to figure out how can we measure performance and how can we make sure that the user has a good experience once they click through. Um, because that's what users also want. It's not the thing that we say like, oh, we, we need to have this. No, it's, it's something that people are interested in and actually they want their results quicker and faster and more snappy and not like this weird jarring experience that I had trying to buy a sofa. Um, will they become more important? Uh, that it's That's a really, really tricky question. So obviously we, we check um, before we roll out changes, we check how they would affect search results and how that would affect uh, the experience of the user on Google search. And we know that for a lot of sites, the page experience change doesn't make that much of a difference, but for a bunch of websites and larger as well as smaller websites are affected, it did make a difference. It's just, it's really, really hard to say how much in proportion, I actually don't know the actual numbers, um, but let's say for 1% of the websites, it makes a difference. That is a lot of websites out there, even though it is just 1%. And obviously like the SEOs working for all the bigger and smaller brands will say like, I don't know anyone who had this. Yes, but there's like, there's diseases out there. We are what, 8 billion people at this point. And uh, there, there's diseases that only 10,000 people have. That's far less than a percent. Um, and there's more websites than people on this earth. So a, a percent is a lot and can have serious consequences. So we had to walk this tight rope between understating the value of this and the impact of this and overstating it. Because no matter what we would say, if we don't make it, and it's unfortunate, if we don't be, if we, if we are not vague in our statements, um, someone will be angry and mad and misunderstood and, and unhappy with it. Um, so we said like, it, it will have impact, but your mileage may vary. Trying to like calm down the freak out period a little bit, but maybe in the future, as more websites are now paying attention to Core Web Vitals, we might see a general improvement of performance on the web. And then those who don't do it will be left behind. It's the same with HTTPS. Obviously, as 90% of the websites in search results didn't have HTTPS, if only the 10% who are not as great had HTTPS, why would we show them over the ones that had better content? But once the one uh, website that had good content also had HTTPS, it might have seen an improvement in its position, thus having impact. And then the others were like, wait, how did they overtake us? Oh, they have HTTPS, it must be that. And then they started changing it over and then it became more important and more visible. It's a chicken egg kind of situation, um, but I, I do think Core Web Vitals will continue to be relevant and important. Just how important it is to you specifically might change and might not even be in our hands when that change will happen and how much of a change it will be for you. I think it's always thoroughly important. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, go ahead, Scott. Oh, I was going to say, as a user, I find it critically important. Like you said, the sofa example. I hate that we have an internet where every single person listening will relate to that. 
Like we've all had those experiences and we shouldn't, I mean, designers, they want to make, or the businesses want to make money. Why are they doing that? You know, and maybe this will just force everybody make the internet better and easier and faster. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think, uh, I think business owners are finally understanding that that's the way it is. People are not going to put up with that anymore. And that's the one benefit of it growing so much, uh, as much as it's much more difficult to stand out it's also easier in some ways because you just got to deliver a great experience when everyone else does that, yeah. then yeah, it'll be a little more difficult again, but there's always a way to get ahead. Um, uh, <laughs> anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll dream of that future. <laughs> yeah. it, um, it reminds me of this cartoon where there's like a, a scientist talking about like how we can improve the way that we interact with our environment and how we can use that to like, you know, have more trees, have more green, uh, take better care of the children and their health and their education and like make sure that no one uh, is is not able to, like there's no one out there who's not able to uh, buy food and have shelter and everything. And then like someone in the audience gets up and is like, but what if it's a hoax and we, hoax and we made the world a better place for nothing? <laughs> <laughs> and it, it feels a little like that. Like if you improve things, um, and get nothing in return, you still improve things. And that sometimes just should be enough. Exactly. Be. But it's in this point. case, we want to proactively um, incentivize it. I think it's a, it's a honorable direction to take. And, and it definitely makes difference is one thing. What, what Love or hate it, Google says to do it. it you don't have a lot of choice. <laughs> so I have, a, I have a few websites I frequent and I'm, I'm hoping they do this and fix it, but they haven't yet. So yeah. I won't name them, point them out, but Ross knows a couple of them that I. <laughs> now, to your absolute credit, you are very thorough in answering your questions. I'm, I'm just so amazed that you really think these true. So thank you. Um, I want to tie things up. I got two questions. One is um, everyone sees this and it drives me a little bit crazy. And again, I'm not a programmer, so I don't actually know all the answers to this. And I know that Okay, I'll get to the question. We noticed that running page speed tests, and even CWV tests, or core web vital tests, return oddly different results from day to day. And it's frustrating. You'll see it drop 10, 20 points or something, and you didn't change your site. And then we get yep. the call from the client going, why did my this drop? And why did that drop? And it is a bit of a, yeah, I swear, I admit. <laughs> What's up with that? Ah, that's that's the next really, really, really tricky problem. Um, so I almost wish there was an average to, button. I'll, I could just prick up. Prick, yeah. button. What is the average? <laughs> well, you you could build that yourself. Uh, so there's <laughs> the way that I think of these tests is very different. Um, I am not interested if it's ninety or ninety five or eighty eight. I'm more interested in what's the general region on the spectrum that I'm in and what's the general trend. Um, obviously, if I don't change anything and I usually don't change anything, uh, like I have periods of not changing my website for a few days, then I can get a feeling for how that looks like and I can do a running average myself, for instance. Um, but generally speaking, I wanna see like, okay, so I have this version A that is already live and it performs anywhere between, let's say, like 80 and 95, right? What happens if I 
make this change. And then I run the test a few times and maybe over a couple of days and uh, under more or less controlled lab environments. And I see, okay, so now this is between 60 and 80. Then that gives me an idea that what I changed might not have been a good change. There might have been consequences that I didn't uh, anticipate. And I want to dig in a little more as to where these problems might come from. Also, oftentimes you see the problem actually doesn't come from you. Actually, it is some, some third party, some provider that provides you with a service like a chat box or something. And that, that just happens to be slow today. Um, and then you're like, aha, oh, so this has an, first things first, it shows you this thing has an impact. And then it shows you this might have a negative impact. It allows you to either talk, reach out to your provider to your third party provider and say like, so what's up with that? Um, or it might allow you to rethink the way that you implement it. And this, this is wild. And um, I, I do love the analytics team. Uh, they are fantastic. But I did work for a com company, you uh, used to work for a company where performance was really, really important uh, because we were doing like real time 3D and VR stuff in the browser. And uh, then someone asked us to add analytics. And actually, Google Analytics wasn't the biggest problem. They, typical marketing uh, department, they wanted us to add three different types of trackers to different kinds of pages. <laughs> and we didn't have the agency as, as developers to say no. Uh, if we were asked to do that, then we could argue that it made performance worse, but then they would come back to us and say like, well then fix that, like make it so that it doesn't. And we had to become very, very creative and, and we used, and actually Google Analytics was the easiest to solve that with because they have an API, even though it's not super well documented, it's, it's easy enough to understand how it works so that we could make our own implementation so that we didn't have to deal with fluctuations in, in the library code that they provide you with, but we basically just use the API and we had much, much more control over how the, that performed and when that loaded. And because only we knew when the website was ready from a user's point of view. And then we're like, and now that the website is ready and the user is already happy, we are very, very happy investing CPU time into doing analytics, just not before, before because that hurts our baseline. And we had data that showed it hurt our baseline to just have the, the analytics, uh, the three analytics tools on the page. But we, we did understand that our marketing needed the, the insights that these tools provided, and they didn't all provide the same insights. So, okay, fine. So we needed to figure out a way to do that without hurting performance. And we wouldn't have done that if it wasn't for the tooling, such as PageSpeed, page that showed us very clearly where the problem was coming from. Mm -hmm. And then we had to get creative. Yes, that's not easy. Yes, it's not always feasible. Yes, not everyone has developer resources to do that. But... I don't think that's a good reason to not have the tools to understand where the problem is coming from. Um, the other issue with these tools, uh, especially PageSpeed Insights and uh, the Lighthouse tooling, is that they need to be as simple as possible to understand, but that also means that you need to break things down, right? We all probably have been introduced into the idea that, you know, at a very high level, everything that we see and touch, and we ourselves are made from tiny, tiny particles. And that's it. That's, that's the level, that's like level one of realizing, okay, that's how the universe roughly works. And then you realize, well, actually, these atoms have protons and neutrons and electrons, and the electrons are like orbiting the protons and neutrons, and that's how that looks like. 
and that is a really well working model of understanding how our world is made up. But then you look no closer and you go like, actually, that's not true. Actually, they don't orbit. They're like, there's this probability cloud around the proton, the nuclei, and, and that's where the electrons are. And you never really know where they are. And if you know where they are, then you don't know this and that. So there's like, it's a lot more complicated. And it's the same thing with Lighthouse. Lighthouse tries to go like, okay, or, or PageSpeed Insights. They try to be like, okay, we need to give you a number uh, from zero to 100 that roughly gives you an idea of where you are at, uh, 85. But what the hell does that mean? Well, it's a formula that takes a lot of metrics, including metrics that are not even Corvette Vitals metrics. It takes these metrics, throws them into a formula that tries to represent by importance, and that's all of that is a guesswork, really. A well-guessed well guesswork, but it's, it's guesswork. It's scientific-ish guesswork. Um, it puts that into a formula and out comes a number. That number is by no means as accurate. Like if, if, I, if I look at my, my uh, bank account, I get a number that's very accurate. That's, that's the number of currency that I have available today and that's it. But the PageSpeed Insight number really is just a rough indicator where you are. And it's, it's tiny little differences. It can just be, am I running another program at the same time? Is this other program that I'm running um, actually fetching something from the network right now? Is my network jittery? If I'm on a mobile phone, run uh, a, a tool that actually tests from my local device um, and my, my mobile phone network breaks down because I'm going into a tunnel with a train, then yeah, I'll get a different score. Does that mean that the tool is broken? No, it just means that there are so many factors, so much jitter as it's called in, in uh, technical terms, actually. There's the, so much noise that is hard to get rid of. And that's why you will always see some differences. And then it's important to look at where is this coming from? And if it says like, oh yeah, so you, you lost 20 points because this font took ages to load, then you can, you can do two things. You can say like, well, okay, so this time the font loaded slower than usual. That might happen, I don't care. Or you might go, hmm, a font not loading should not make my website this much slower. Can I look into why that made my website so much slower? And if there is a way to implement it so that if that happens again, it doesn't make my website as slow. But finding the difference between that's just a, a glitch in the network or in the way that the service works versus that's something that I can improve and how easy can I improve this is not easy to master. That's something that requires a lot of experience and knowledge and Unfortunately, that's something that is not very easy to put into any kind of tool. Interesting. So um, one thing you mentioned piqued my curiosity. You said about Google Analytics and API. They, um, is that, so just to be clear, that was a way to replace the, the snippet that you put in there that slows, typically yeah. slows down. Is there a, yeah. a product out there that you're aware of? Not asking you really give a, you know, a suggestion, but anything out there you know that makes it easy to implement that? API? I don't know. I actually don't know. And mm -hmm. I also don't know if what we did was actually technically cool ah. with <laughs> analytics. It, it ah. worked. I'm not yeah. saying it, it continued to work or something like I, I don't even know if that was fine, but it worked. It, it solved the problem. Because it is an annoyance of ours too. It's, mm -hmm. it's uh, painfully ironic when we <laughs> we're like, okay, we're trying tool. to get this lower, but it's Google's darn Code. The Google tool that, tells us the Google, Google code is broken, yeah. And, and that actually, honestly, as ridiculous as that looks from the outside, I'm really, really happy about that because 
um, it means that our separation works well enough. So search wants to be this neutral, fair platform to everyone. So even Googlers, if an analytics team comes to us and goes like, can you tell us how we fix this? We are like, no, there's our public documentation, go figure it out. Hmm. This is, it's the same with people are like, oh, we are using Angular because it must be better with Google search. No, it's not. Hmm. No, it's not. The Angular team will use the exact same information available to everyone else out there. There's no special treatment for Google products. And if our uh, Google products are not up to snuff, they will get pressure from the outside and they'll be like, oh shit, we're Google, we need to fix this. And then they'll come to us and ask us like, can you help? And we say, no, there's mm -hmm. documentation, there's information out there. You can ask public questions. We'll happily help. Interesting. That's cool. Yeah. All right, well, last question. Um, very speculative one, kind of fun. I've heard so much lately about this, but what are your personal thoughts to likelihood of web point 3.0 becoming a reality? Hmm. Web 3.0 is a non-solution looking for a problem. And um, <laughs> I don't, I mean, there will be something. Um, there will be people building the technologies for it, but I don't see that as solving a real problem in a realistic, useful way. Yeah, I mean, I know I am... for a lot of big, big companies, and, and for listeners who don't know what it sure. is, Web 3.0 is, is the um, anticipated switch of the web to uh, a blockchain, underlying blockchain technology that's decentralized so that you have control over your own privacy and all this stuff, and it would be a- And, and that's so funny because most of the yeah. things that call themselves blockchain and decentralized aren't. Um, and there, there it, it, it bugs me a lot because there is a thing called the unhosted web or the decentralized web. And there's like a lot of work being done in reasonable ways. For instance, IPFS is a great technology, uh, that hasn't really taken off much, but it's a way to break out from this classical server client infrastructure where you have to have a central physical machine in the end, even if we call it a cloud in the end, it's mm -hmm. physical machines that sit in a data center rather than under your desk, but it's, it's, that's what it is. There's a physical machine that has a, an actual virtual file on it. And that serves these files to anyone asking, um, if that machine goes down, the file stops being available. That's, that's the problem with, with, or the, the challenge of the internet, right? So. Um, not only if this machine goes down, because like, for instance, if I make a website on this machine that I'm recording on, I'm now connected to the internet. I'm in Switzerland, so I have fast internet as well. Um, if, if I have a power outage, anything that would surf from this machine is, is not available to anyone out there. How can I solve this? Well, I can buy another machine that sits in the US. Now there must have, must be a power outage simultaneously. In, on my computer here in Switzerland and in the US, because if one of them goes down, the other one would continue to be available to requests and, and give the file out, fantastic. But what if I am annoying someone with that and they very specifically come to my house, break in, kill my server and then fly to the US and kill that server too. That's really, really unfortunate. And that's the idea of the decentralized web that we don't, you can't do that because everyone who is a participant in this network 
is also hosting part of the internet. So there's always at any point in time, there's millions of potential computers who are making an, a, a resource available, which comes with this whole other host of problems. Uh, one of them is where do I find things, right? The way that the internet works is there's fundamentally a huge phone book that says, if I go to google.com, one of these thousands of machines will answer. Um, what if there is no such phone book? Because the moment you have a phone book, you have centralization, because what if this phone book becomes unavailable? Mm. So there, there are a lot of challenges that are really, really hard to solve, which makes it a lot of, makes a lot of in engineers really, really interested in solving this because it's interesting and fantastic and wow. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know if, if there is enough pain for the normal person to be like, oh yeah, I really, I really want a web where I am hosting part of the web myself and uh, no one can ever like take down a server because I'm, I'm one of millions of partial servers that are making something available. I don't think we've, we've seen this often enough. Like it's not that the website that you frequent every day goes down because the government takes it down or something, right? That does just doesn't normally happen. So I don't know if that solves a big enough problem for the real world people using the web. Thank you. That's a great answer. Thanks. Well, wow. This has been awesome. It's gone over and I really appreciate that you spent so much time. This is, a, I've enjoyed this thoroughly. I uh, love your answers and um, they're very open about it. That's great. Thank you. Um, I enjoyed this as much as you did. It's yes. fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> well, thank you. We'd love to have you on again. I, we didn't even scratch the surface. We have so many ideas and questions and, and wow, I just didn't <laughs> want to interrupt you. These are great. So, uh, and I know the listeners are going to love it as well. So anyway, uh, on behalf of myself, Ross Dunn, CEO of Step Forth Web Marketing, my company senior SEO, Scott Van Ack, and our friend Martin Split, developer advocate of the Google Search Relation team. Thank you very much for joining us. And uh, Martin, again, we'd love to have you back again. And, and uh, there's always stuff to talk about. And, and I hope <laughs> this thing with LinkedIn clears up quickly. Who needs that? Who needs it, right? It, it'll clear up. No, the thing is like, I, I feel passionate about these topics and I just want them to understand what I meant and um, to hopefully come out and not spread misinformation because it is possible that they have been running around telling people like, oh, stop everything you're doing. Please fix this markup first because it's so important when there have been bigger things that needed fixing instead. And um, if, if they come out with more knowledge and I come out with more knowledge, in this case, I actually already learned that I need to be very, very careful about this topic, apparently, uh, because there's a lot apparently. of people who are really, really sensitive around it. Um, so I learned something. I, I'll try to help them learn something as well. Um, awesome. And then hopefully we all come out smarter. Well, uh, between you and John, and I haven't met your Gary yet, but you guys are doing a lot for the community. So thank you for, for putting yourself out there and, and doing such a great well, job of your job. You're, you're putting a, a podcast out there. So thanks a lot to, to both you, Scott and Ross, uh, for, for having us and um, producing this podcast. Well, our pleasure. Our pleasure. Well, any, uh, listeners, if you have any questions you'd like to share with us, please feel free to post them on our Facebook group, easily found by searching SEO 101 podcast. And uh, if you enjoyed the show, we appreciate any feedback on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or favorite podcast stream. Have a great week, and remember to tune into future episodes, which air every week on WMR.FM. Thanks for listening.
The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited.